For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is an encore edition of Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about the origins of some of Tucson's most well-known street names. Meet a retired park ranger who was inspired by the Arizona Trail to write a book of poetry. A conversation with Jess Baker, author of Land Whale, a memoir about growing up and finding happiness while also being fat. And Dr. Bernard Lafayette shares stories from a life committed to civil rights and peaceful protest. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Streets have names so we know where we're going. They also provide a way to honor people and events from the past. Next, David Layton, the writer of the Arizona Daily Star's Street Smarts column, shares the stories behind some of Tucson's most recognizable street names. And, spoiler warning, they're not always the ones you've heard before. Do you know where the name Speedway came from? No. Actually, I don't think I do. Because it's a drag strip? People would uh, race up and down that street. Late 70s, early 80s in high school, that was a place where people would go racing, speed racing. So I believe that's where it, it got its name, Speedway. Well, surprisingly, Speedway Boulevard, which most people think comes from the fact that people used to race cars there, which they did, actually derives its name from the Harlem River Speedway. A guy named George Kitt, who had just returned from New York City, and who had attended a race suggested the name Speedway because at that point people were racing horses down that alignment. You got to remember that Speedway Boulevard was very far from the center of town. The center of town at that point was downtown, so it was a pretty safe place to race horses. Ah, so it was a speed racing place, it just wasn't for cars. I wasn't there for the horse racing. <laughs> Tucson's got a great history, and I fell in love with history growing up here in Tucson. And I was always curious about, you know, who these streets were named after. So, I, you know, I took this up many years ago and uh, wrote for the Arizona Daily Star in my Street Smarts column. The Grant Road, I don't know. I'm not sure. Probably the guy from the general. I'd guess some fool named it after President Grant, but I don't know. You know, that's a common misconception by many Tucsonans is that Grant Road is named for Ulysses S. Grant, the famous Union General. But in fact, it's named for a local homesteader who worked for the Southern Pacific Railroad for many years. This was the property or the homestead of John Breck Grant, about 80 acres, which was sometimes referred to as Grant Ranch. One of the things that I learned from his grandchildren is that he was a very hard worker. He was very dedicated to the Southern Pacific Railroad. I mean, he actually worked there from the late 1890s up until 1930. Tucson was at one point the northernmost point of the Spanish Empire, founded in the 1770s. Originally, all the streets in Tucson were in Spanish. There were streets like Calle de la Alegría, or Happiness Street, which is now Congress Street, or Calle del Arroyo, which is now Pennington Street. During the early 1870s, they surveyed and renamed the streets, but at that point, all the street names switched over to English. Kennedy, 
Well, everybody would assume President Kennedy. Uh, the president? Well, that would be the president, I hope. No! Oh, my! Streets like Cushing and Simpson and Kennedy are all named after citizens of Tucson that were killed by Apaches as well as Jackson Street. Pennington Street, which was named for the Pennington family. Many of the family members, including the father and many of her brothers, were killed by Apaches. Stone Avenue is named for John F. Stone, who was a prominent Tucson citizen. He owned the Apache Pass Mining Company, and he was the first person to build a home on a dirt path that became Stone Avenue, named for him after his death. Park? I'm not sure. Park Avenue? Monopoly? <laughs> park? No, I don't. Well, there must have been a park nearby. I'm going to guess that there's a park near there. Well, what makes Park Avenue in Tucson unique is because it actually derives its name from the Union Park racetrack. So in 1893, a group of Tucsonans uh, came together to create a field or a track for people to play baseball games at, uh, do horse race tracking and bicycle racing as well. There was also gun shoots and skeet shoots in the area as well. So the park was in existence from about uh, 1893 to about 1908. Even though it was for a short period, it was a very prestigious place to go to, and it was a very important part of Tucson life at that point. What about Broadway? Well, that's kind of a city common street name. I don't know that it had an, what the origin. Broadway, I believe, is maybe because of the movies? Just a wild guess? The street we now call Broadway Boulevard was originally called Camp Street. It was named in the early 1870s, and it was named for Camp Lowell. Fred Ronstadt, the patriarch of the rather large Ronstadt family in Tucson, had a wagon shop and hardware store uh, located on present-day Scott Avenue and the old Camp Street. A hardware salesman who came in from New York City came to Tucson to sell Fred Ronstadt some hardware supplies. Tucson, of course, at that point was all dirt roads. It was mostly adobe, and they were looking at this little sun-baked town, and the uh, New York salesperson told Fred Ronset, what you need here is some of the hustle and bustle of New York City. Now, a few months later, that same salesman returned with a borrowed sign, as they say. Mr. Ronstadt thought it was a great idea, and he posted it on his wagon shop. And by about the early 1900s, people started calling it Broadway. So it is actually named for the Broadway Boulevard in New York City, based on a sign that was borrowed from New York City. That story was produced by Andrew Brown and edited by Nate Huffman. You can find the version that aired on Arizona Illustrated at azpm.org. The names of local landmarks also play a part in this next story. The Arizona Trail spans more than 800 miles, from the border with Mexico to the Utah state line, and it's inspired many to undertake an impressive journey. Green Valley resident Stephen Chaffee has hiked it twice, in 2011 and 2015, and earlier this year he completed a book called The Arizona Trail, Passages in Poetry. Tony Paniagua has the interview. 
Stephen Shafi, let's begin with how you heard about the Arizona Trail and why did you decide to undertake this gigantic journey across the state? Yeah, I heard that there was going to be a work event up near Colossal Cave, uh, REI and, and the Arizona Trail Association, they were holding this event. So I went, I met a fellow that actually is one of the stewards on the trail and he got me interested in volunteering and from there I volunteered some, and then decided, yeah, I'd like to try and hike the Arizona Trail. And somebody encouraged you to try to do it because you were saying you weren't too sure about whether yeah, you should uh, do this. Uh, a lady named Serena Defoe. Uh, she had hiked it once before, and she's the one I actually made the comment to about uh, not, I'm 62 years old, and she said, no, nah, you can do it. So I did. And you did it twice. You went up part of the way and then came back for your car. Can you tell us a little bit about that plan? Yeah, exactly. I was going to do this entire hike solo, unassisted. And so the way I wanted to do it was to maybe hike a day or two out one direction from my truck and then hike back to my truck and go home. And I did that pretty much for the entire trip. You know, sometimes it was just one day, sometimes two days, sometimes three days out one direction and then always back to my vehicle. And um, it was it was a great way to do it because it really helped uh, in uh, the writing of the poetry that I wanted to. That was my other objective besides hiking 800 miles. You are a retired National Park Ranger. Did that make it easier for you, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think in some respects. I, I had a lot of uh, previous hiking experience, primarily up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but also back east. And, you know, I, I felt totally comfortable hiking solo. Always have. That's the way I like to do it. And when did the poetry come into your life? The poetry, uh, uh, the first poem I ever wrote was a, a love poem to my girlfriend in high school, but uh, there were a lot of years where I didn't write any poetry at all. It wasn't, wasn't until I retired that I had the time to really put into it. So you did 43 passages. That's how many passages the Arizona Trail has, right? Exactly. The 800 miles is divided up into 43 named passages, each with its own name. And so I decided... I'll use the title of those passages for the title of my poems. Worked out great. I'd like to uh, read the first poem that I wrote for this book. It's about a passage that I'm a, a, a steward for. And it's, uh, this passage is along the northeast uh, slope of the Santa Rita Mountains. It's called Las Colinas. These hills turn an old story. Mount Fagan witnesses a naturalist point a miner's counterpoint, our water, our desert, our recreation, our jobs, our homes, our industries, today's classic conservation conundrum. The trail skirts Rosemont Junction through storm-laden washes, rolling hills in Schofield Canyon. Horseback riders, hikers, hunters, runners, mountain bikers traverse this wild land. A path meanders around man-eating sized prickly pear, house-high ocotillo, mesquite, birds, lizards, snakes, and occasional deer. But for how long? When we were speaking ahead of this interview, you say that you wanted to focus on history, your personal experiences, and the environment. Right. One of the historical aspects that you mentioned is about a man who moved to Arizona, and then all of a sudden he had a whole bunch of places named after him. Yeah. It's Superstition Wilderness. This is actually one of two poems for that passage. Eliza Rivas didn't complain much, left wife and daughter in California, staked his claim in superstition solitude on self-reliance, a living maid in apples and spuds sold to Pinnell miners. 
Eliza died along the trail, gave us Rivas Ranch, Rivas Valley, Rivas Gap, Rivas Saddle, Rivas Creek, Rivas Canyon. Not bad for a produce man, beats a park bench. When was he around in our state? This is back in the early 1900s. So you learned about a lot of different places and people along the way, right? Yeah, I, I did some research, uh, light research, um, as I was hiking uh, different passages. And there are other people in my book that I talk about. Up in the San Francisco peaks, I was actually taking a break, and I saw this um, thin black fellow run by me up the trail. And I didn't say hello to him. He didn't look at me. And then shortly after that, a, a woman came by, and I asked her about it. She knew this guy. She said, yeah, he's from Ethiopia. He goes to school at Northern Arizona University. He's a, a runner, and he's training for the Olympics. I said, wow. And he was just quiet as a deer when he was running. Uh, anyway, it, it struck me as interesting. Stephen, what do you hope people take from this book of poetry? I hope the book serve as a little bit of inspiration to get people's uh, interest uh, up uh, to, to actually hike uh, the trail or uh, mountain bike it or uh, do it on horseback. It's trails maintained for those three, uh, three uses. So uh, I just hope it inspires some people to get out and enjoy uh, some of Arizona's wildlands. Uh, the Arizona Trail is a great place to start. Any suggestions to somebody who might be a little bit nervous, apprehensive about trying to undertake yeah. Any hike, uh, let alone the Arizona Trail. Well, you know, I, I really uh, think that research is a really important thing. And, and the Arizona Trail has a great guidebook uh, Matt Nelson and others put together and answers a lot of questions. Um, and we have a great website, aztrail.org. You can get a wealth of information from that, from that website. And there are a lot of uh, volunteers with the organization that are out there to uh, help uh, people that are interested uh, we have trail angels that'll spot water for people or drive them to a trailhead. So there's a lot of help out there. You just have to research it out. Stephen Shaffee, author of the Arizona Trail Passages and Poetry. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Moving forward, Stephen Chaffee says he's going to stay closer to his wife and home, so he plans to do most of his hiking in the Santa Rita Mountains east of Green Valley, and he's thinking about writing a second book of poetry. We all have to live with our bodies, but how many of us have learned to love them? Tucson body positivity activist Jess Baker was already well-known online as the Militant Baker when she wrote her first book, Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls, in 2015. The follow-up book comes from an even more personal place. It's called Land Whale, on turning insults into nicknames, why body image is hard, and how diets can kiss my ass. Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls was really important to write because at the time there really wasn't a, a manual that had everything that I I learned about body liberation in one book. And I wanted that to exist. So it was fairly cut and dry. It was stuff I had been talking about for four years. You know, it was things I knew really well. This is really raw. It is really messy. And I learned things as I wrote it. I wanted to write about things that we're not talking about because it's scary or there's shame or both. And so you'll find a lot of that and a lot of my personal stories in there as well, because it is a memoir. So I didn't really dedicate it to anyone. My dedication is a quote by Ijoma Ulio, who is 
probably one of my favorite writers. She just wrote a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. That's a New York Times bestseller. We had a phone conversation and she just threw this out there. She's just brilliant on accident. Um, and I, I used it as my dedication because it really is the thing that I kept in my mind as I was writing this. And I had to come back to it because I would get scared. Um, and I came back to this every time. And she says, we have tried to prove to the thin world that we are worthy for far too long. If you are going to be brave, be brave for the fat people. One thing I notice when I look at the comments that people leave online, say after your TED talk or, you know, posting about you, and these are people who are not listening to you, which is clear, but a lot of them say, oh, just quit eating. Just, just go to the gym. Like it's that easy, but it's not just a choice for some people. It's not as easy as just doing these simple things that they always say are so simple. Tell me what you think. Well, there's a chapter and it answers the internet's most pressing question, which is, have you ever thought about dieting? Which I find <laughs> hilarious. That's it. Right? <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, everyone wants to know if I've ever considered a diet. And I normally don't respond to those things online because who has the time for that? But in writing the book, I had a chance to kind of talk about it. And yes, I have been on diet since I was 13. Diets are so harmful and they, they ruin your metabolism and they um, really physically enter your body. And so it's really interesting to me that that's the thing we push towards people for health. For me, health is a holistic, you know, whole body wellness. It's not as simple as just forcing your body to go to the gym. A lot of people, especially fat people, but a lot of people have trauma around movement because it has been punishment their entire life, which is true for me. So to just go to the gym is a horrific experience. <laughs> like it's not good for my mental health. And so it's like this balance, right? Of like, what do I do to take care of myself? Um, and, and the sweet spot is learning to connect your mind and your body so that they can talk to each other. It's this concept called body trust that we don't even acknowledge or talk about in this society. And it's because the trust has been broken, you know, on purpose through diet culture. And to heal that relationship is really, really difficult. But it's also, I think, one of the most important things. Jess Baker's book is called Land Whale. You can find our complete conversation at azpm.org. On the morning of the day that he was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told a young associate named Bernard Lafayette that their next task would be to institutionalize and internationalize the nonviolence movement. After King's death, that became Lafayette's life work. Today, he is chair of the National Board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization founded by Dr. King. Laura Markowitz talked with civil rights pioneer Bernard Lafayette. At 78 years old, Bernard Lafayette Jr. comes across as laid back. He leans back in his chair and adjusts his cap. It has the words Freedom Rider emblazoned on the front. In fact, his new book, In Peace and Freedom, is all about those days. But Lafayette's work is not just in the past. He's been busy for the last 53 years building an international movement that teaches the principles of Martin Luther King's version of nonviolence. It's called Kingian nonviolence. So we have institutions around the world, like, for example, Alternatives to Violence Project, and that's in prisons. It's in about 60 countries around the world, 30 states in the U.S. It helps the inmates 
learn how to manage conflict in a nonviolent way. Just a few months ago, Lafayette trained Nigerian tribal leaders, generals, and kings. On the second day of our training in Nigeria, one of the leaders got a phone call from home saying that his house had been invaded and his brother was killed and his wife and children were on the run and all they wanted was the word from their leader who was with us to go after them. And he said, no, don't do anything until I get back. I have found another way. This person had under his direct command 1.2 million armed troops. And as a result of the nonviolence training, we were able to avert that situation. See, people revert to violence when they don't know what else to do. Violence is the language of the inarticulate. People don't know how to talk to each other. They stay separated from each other, and they form these false opinions and ideas about each other. He had first-hand experience of this growing up in the segregated South in the 1940s. I grew up in Tampa, Florida. When I was seven years old, I used to wake up early in the morning because I could smell the Cuban coffee being roasted. So I got out of bed and decided that I was going to go walk around, and I found the merchants preparing to open up their stores. So I came up with the idea that uh, these people might need some coffee. They didn't have these coffee machines in those days. So I was Mr. Coffee. I would go and take orders, and I would go down to Las Novedades restaurant and put in my order. And then I would take it back to the merchants, and there was a 10 cents for the coffee and 10 cents for the delivery. Well, I was waiting on my coffee to be served at the restaurant, and I used to lean against a, a stool. And I was a, kind of a short fella, so those were tall stools. And then eventually... I would put my thigh up on top of the stool and uh, rest it there for a while. And over a period of time, I eased on up on top of the stool and then I was sitting there. And I remember even this day, the moment of truth, the fellow was fixing the coffee, there was a huge mirror in front of him and he could look and see me behind him and our eyes met and I saw him look towards the window to make sure no one saw me sitting on the stool. I continued to talk and talk and talk. We talked about everything else except sitting on the stool. When I started sitting on that stool, uh, the service was faster. I hadn't thought about it until now. It didn't take as long for him to fix the coffee. He wanted to get you out of there. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> mm -hmm. It sounds like that experience gave you a sense of confidence that you could be seen as a human being and treated like a human being. Yes. When I was growing up, Tarzan, by himself, he would whip an entire African tribe. So that gave credence to the fact that if you're white, you're superior. What we have to do is continue to educate and expose people to a different point of view. I had other experiences that motivated me to get involved in the movement. I used to spend my time following behind my grandmother. So this time we were catching the, the streetcar, we call it, trolley car. In those days, blacks had to go and put their money in the front in the receptacle by the driver. And then we had to disembark and walk on the side of the streetcar to the back door. 
And we used to have to sometimes run because the conductor, after he got your money, and you were walking to the back, he would close the door and take off with your money. So I used to run ahead, jump on the back steps so the door wouldn't close. So I was running back there, and my grandmother was running behind me, and she fell, and she was a large woman. And then I reached back to try to pick her up, and then the trolley was moving, and I tried to hold the door, and I felt like a sword had cut me in half. So I felt helpless. And I remember saying this to myself. I said, when I get grown, I'm going to do something about this problem. Lafayette was 19 when he co-founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He became a freedom rider. At age 22, he was director of the Alabama voter registration campaign in Selma. I was really impressed with the power of nonviolence. It's a resource that you can use in your struggle where you don't depend on any outside objects. In other words, you are fully armed even when you step out of the shower in the morning with the truth, with courage, with a vision, with a philosophy. Lafayette survived an assassination attempt on the night Medgar Evers was killed. He says these experiences only deepened his conviction that nonviolence is the best path to meaningful social change. We have had an escalation of violence in our society, both in the everyday experiences and ordinary people, but also in terms of our media, everywhere you turn. So I think we have to talk to our young people that they come to the conclusion that this is not very healthy for us. It contributes more to our demise than our rise. And therefore, if they develop an attitude of rejecting that, then the change will come. Glad to see what's happening in Florida with the high school students. The most important thing is not the experiences that they're having, it's their interpretation of those experiences. That's why it's important for us to talk to children. They're experiencing things every day is how you interpret the experience. You can only fight and change hate with love. You can't drive out darkness with darkness, only with light. You have to see the goal that you're trying to reach, but you have to reflect that goal in every step that you make towards that goal. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org for more information about Kingian nonviolence training in Tucson. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.